You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump says he aced a cognitive test by identifying a whale. I'm sorry, but you can't argue with that. We have such a great show today. NBC News' John Allen joins us from the snowy fields of New Hampshire to give us updates on the Republican presidential campaign trail. And we'll also talk a little bit about the Congress and it pretending to want to deal with immigration. Then we'll talk to Heather Williams, president of the DLCC, about the ways in which Democrats are trying to influence policy at a state level. But first, we have the host of The Time of Monsters, The Nation's G-Tier. Welcome back to Fast Politics, my bestie, G-Tier. Always good to uh, be on the program. I'm very happy to have you. I really like you, even though we never get to hang out because you live in Canada. I think it's much better if I go down and visit you in New York. Yes, and we'll all go on a nation cruise. I saw this piece of news. It really captured my imagination, and I wanted to talk to you about it first. Justin Trudeau, your prime minister, is pretty hot to run against Trump. Explain to us how this works. I think what they're going to do is try to link the conservative party here to Trump. And that might have been uh, hard to do like five years ago 
or more. Canadian conservatives used to be of a different breed, but unfortunately, like as in many other places in the world, the right here has taken a sort of populist turn, and including on issues like not uh, wanting to help support Ukraine, but uh, also like sort of, you know, soft denial of COVID and anti-vaxxing stuff. And so, yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think Trudeau, he's very down on the polls right now. I think they have a plausible path forward, emphasizing how much the conservatives have become Trump-like. And Trump is very unpopular here. He's like 80% of the population here doesn't like him. So if you can get that anti-Trump vote, you're doing well. It's interesting to think about. Here's a brand that's so bad that other presidents in other countries are going to run against him. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's right. Well, I, I actually think that Trump's brand is bad in the United States. It's a little bit deceptive right now. Because he's in the Republican primaries, that's the group of people that like him. I actually think people are underestimating Trump's unpopularity. I think so, too. Now, I want to ask you, as we go down this rabbit hole, um, I think that's right. But polling, and again, full disclaimer, not a fan, but polling has Biden down. There clearly is a feeling certain progressives are very mad at him. What do you think... It's many days away from the election. And so there really is an opportunity for Biden to win those people back. Right. Like the never Trump Republicans are not going anywhere. They have no choices. But like, how does Biden win progressives back? How does he bring them home? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things that have to happen. One is, I, I think it's really hard, like as long as Gaza and foreign policy are kind of dominating the news, like I don't think people necessarily voted for that. And it's becoming increasingly unpopular with his own base. But let's stipulate yeah. that, you know, like that's not going to go on forever and is not going to be the main issue in the summer and the fall. I actually think that Biden's doing a couple of things that are like smart and maybe he's not giving, getting enough credit for. Oh, interesting. One is the uh, Consumer uh, Financial Protection Bureau. They just released a rule ending uh, bank overdraft fees. And uh, like, that's a, like a really good measure. It's like a small poor thing, but like it actually, you know, like a lot of people do live paycheck to paycheck. It punishes poor people disproportionately. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They're setting aside like land for solar power. A lot of federal land is just announced today, like a small bore thing, but it sort of, I think it's a good wedge issue because that's obviously something Donald Trump will not do. And I think like the more you can emphasize like all, you know, like the stuff that like Biden can do and that Trump won't. Young people do vote on climate because they would like the planet to still be here. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, using the power that you have as a sort of federal uh, administrative state. And I think there's a lot more that could be done in this area. I mean, I think that Biden's been good on judges, but that's been slowing down lately. And I would actually like really encourage them to like pick up the pace uh, for, for a variety of reasons. One of which is just like, you know, you could also lose, right? Like you actually want to get as many of your judges in there as possible and prevent as many uh, Trump appointing judges if he gets back in. But having done that, I mean, I don't think you should just be doing it as a routine administrative thing. Like they just play up the fact that like, hey, there are all these judges out there. Uh, the Trump judges are voting very badly on a lot of issues, like, you know, particularly on abortion stuff. That continues to be a big issue, like where they're like supporting bad decisions at a state level and not, not offering protection of rights. So I think that like if you can play up the judge issue as a political issue to like just say like it actually like, really matters, like, you know, if your judge is going to like vote to say that like birth control pills are illegal and force women whose uh, babies have already died to like carry to term. I would actually like turn the judge stuff into like a fighting issue. Just say these are just like regular, ordinary judges, right? These are, you know, Trump judges. 
occasionally like push judges as well, you know, but just say like, we actually, you know, are having a big battle about this and then make that the issue. You know, I think the Supreme Court, because of Dobbs has like really made itself an issue. And I think that you can both run on Dobbs and but also like emphasize the new decisions that are going to come down. Because I actually think there's a pretty good chance they're going to overturn the sort of Chevron precedent, uh, which will be like disaster for the environment. And again, as you said, like the young people and the left-wing progressives who are wary of Biden, I think that, you know, you have to like make that a fighting issue. Say like, you know, like these decisions are, you know, coming from a pretty demonstrably corrupt court, especially like, you know, like Gorsuch, you know, his family has a long history of like anti-environmental policy. And this is something they've wanted for years. There is a way in which like Biden and Democrats of his generation are sort of conflict averse and they are worried about, you know, like undermining the system. But actually, I honestly think like, you know, like making the judiciary like a central thing and saying like, you know, all these bad things that are happening, if you don't give uh, Biden and a Democratic Senate, then, you know, the Republicans will entrench their powers in the courts even more. And that'll make like everything like just so much harder on any issue you care about. So I, I think that there's like, uh, as I said, a host of policy stuff. You know, like I wrote about this recently, the transportation issue. Like, you know, like if you're willing to pick a fight with Boeing, and with the airlines. And this is, again, going against how Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, has generally behaved. But like, if he actually says, like, everyone is mad at the airlines, right? And, he, and Buttigieg did actually, to give him credit, did like do a very strong thing in finding the airlines for the big mess that they created. Not the past Christmas, but the previous Christmas. And they were not happy with that. That was really good. Yeah, but, but just like, I think there are a lot of people that are very mad. Boeing is a great example. Yeah, Boeing is a great example. And... Like to actually, and you know, like this is something is a bit of a challenge because unfortunately there are Democrats who have ties to Boeing, but I think it's the more popular position is to go against them to say like, you know, like you had a company that, you know, used to be run by engineers and had engineers like on the board of directors. And now it's all just concerned with Wall Street and say like, you know, you, you have to change. And Boeing is a company that depends on government money, right? And like, if you're going to get like and it, uh, all that government money one way or another, you know, you have to like live up to certain standards, both as an economic populist thing, but I, I think also just as the sort of, you know, build back better agenda, right? We want America to be like competent again. We want to you know, America to be that great manufacturing power. And as president, I'm going to like call out Boeing and I'm going to call out the airlines because the way they're been running stuff since COVID, like it's, it's a disgrace. And I think a lot of people are angry about it. As I mentioned earlier, I was pretty pleased with the overdraft thing because that is a sign of an administration that's willing to pick a fight with the banks, right? So you have to just like pick out like five or six villains that are not just Trump, but like these are kind of corporate villains. And I think then you tie in with Trump. It's not just you're going to get Trump back in, but Trump is a phony. He's He says he's like for the people, Man. but he'll never pick these fights. We'll pick these fights. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. This idea that Democrats can actually be economic populists in a way that Republicans can't because they have no interest in being it. And it is like true, right, that Democrats are populists. You don't do these things unless you believe in helping people, right? So I do think that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I think there has actually been a lot of stuff, you know, maybe not as much as I've liked or as many of your listeners would like, but there has been stuff that Biden has been doing. You know, like I mentioned, Lisa Kahn, who's the chairwoman of the um, Federal Trade Commission, like she's been like doing some pretty serious anti-monopoly stuff that's like really gotten corporate America angry at her. 
If I were her, I would take out a restraining order against the Wall Street Journal because they are obsessed with her. <laughs> They've published like, like scores of articles. If this were like a civilian person, you'd be saying like, okay, you can't get within like 80 feet of her, right? But they're obsessed with her on behalf of corporate America. And I don't see why the Democrats shouldn't say, we appointed this person, super competent, a real fighter, and she's like making the corporations mad as hell. And they hate her. And this is our fighter. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think a sort of fighting message will help Biden a lot. And I think it's a message that actually has the virtue of being consistent with the facts. Like it has the virtue of like you're actually trying to sell something that's true. We talked about the polls, right? There is like reason to be pessimism. I, I don't want to be like a Pollyanna. And the, the, the prospect of you know, another Trump presidency should terrify us. It's going to be the end. It's going to be like a period of turmoil in America that like we've never seen. And the polls are tight and it's going to be tight in the fall. But the Democrats continue to like overperform in the sort of special elections. They just won one down in Florida. Yeah, state house. Yeah, state house. They flipped that. And actually, I think Florida is kind of an interesting thing because it's something that sort of like fell out of the grasp of the Democrats starting in 2015, 2016. But I think that DeSantis, you know, in trying to become president has like gone so far to the right that he's actually like activated Democratic Party there. It's brown back all over again, right? I mean, it's Arizona. It's Sheriff Joe, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that there's, you know, ways in which one can win back people. And I think that there's a ways in which the, you know, and the unpopularity of both Trump and the Republican Party is like a big factor. So I honestly think if it's a domestic policy issue, Biden's in good shape. Like on foreign policy, like I'm not a complete hater of Biden either, but I think it's the unfortunate thing is that there's a lot of people who are instinctively think like if there's wars, you want like a tough guy, right? Well, there's stuff to criticize in Biden or whatever, but I, I just worry about that. Yeah. Joe Biden is not the first person to get into trouble with this situation, which is a completely unsolvable solve. Everything is just a humanitarian crisis everywhere. It is a really interesting moment. I think your point, though, about economic populism and I mean, even like, for example, the CHIPS Act, which nobody cares about, but is actually humongous, right, is this idea that they brought all this manufacturing back to the United States, which was Trump. He said he was going to bring back things that he didn't and couldn't have, you know, coal, which is very, very expensive. It's bad for the climate. Yes. But it's also quite expensive, right? It's like you might as well just not do that and do something cheaper. He said he was going to bring back coal and make coal great again. That's a great example, though. Like chips is actually bringing back manufacturing to America in a way that we hadn't in a long time. And I think that's quite, quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that's quite interesting. I think another thing that Democrats can lean on is labor. Like there has been a real, you know, revival of labor in terms of like labor having a fighting spirit. And yeah. there've been like, you know, these and big unions. strikes and unions, yeah, these big strikes that have been union victories, like of a type that we haven't really seen since the 70s. And I think like, you know, like if Joe Biden is like up there with the auto workers, even with like, you know, the Hollywood people, the writers and actors and uh, with the Teamsters who were a big part of that Hollywood strike in, in terms of support. Like just say you have a president that has the back of labor that supported labor during the auto strike. You're not going to get that with Trump. Really emphasize the differences in sort of like economic and material terms. I think this is a, like a debate among the left. Like there's some people who think like, well, Trump's threat to democracy is bad enough that that should convince people. In theory, I kind of agree with you, but like actually like to motivate people, to get people to vote, get out there. 
Like if you can actually show like real material things that you're making a difference on to show them, like this is a union president. I think that would mobilize people because, you know, it's actually interesting. You look at the, you're talking about polls. You look at the polls, all of the institutions, the Supreme Court, the media, the military, they're all down in terms of public trust. The only institution that's like risen in public trust in the last 10 years is unions. And they're actually like at an all-time high. So why not make it clear, like one party is the party of unions and one party is not? It's a really good point. It's funny because we always think about like, I was right about the Supreme Court and how their approval rating is literally every day, man, there gets lower. Yeah, historic lows, historic lows for the Supreme Court. Right, and like people hate Congress, they hate the president, they hate this, they hate that. But they do like unions. And that's after the Koch brothers spending a lot of money trying to say, you know, unions don't. There's so much corporate money fighting unions. There's one thing they don't like. It's unions. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I, I think that you want a wedge issue where the Republicans can join you. Like like Trump did try. He's a little bit smarter than most Republicans. He tried to make it look like he was supporting the auto workers, but he actually you know, went to a non-union shop. Right. <laughs> so Trumpy. And the thing with unions is they're good educational enterprises. Like, you know, they don't just go on strike. They have like meetings and membership and they tell you up the, the union officials talk to members and you have to trust the members because uh, they're the guys, you know, if you get in trouble with the boss, your union uh, steward is the person that's going to have your back. Mobilize the unions and get this message out that there's a fundamental difference and that Trump is a phony. I think that'll make a big difference. I'm not totally like pessimistic. Like I think, you know, things are a lot closer than I would like them to be. Just on the issues, I think Biden has a lot of advantages. The other thing is just to mobilize the whole party, like not just have it, you know, like Biden, but you know, you have like, you know, like Obama, Warren, you have Bernie Sanders, you have all these very popular governors like Whitmer. If you mobilize the whole party, I think this is a winnable fight. Like, I I don't want any of your listeners to like, you know, let's throw in the towel right now because I that's not where we're at. Jeet here. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's always a pleasure. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Today, we're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. When I first heard about it, I thought, it's about time. This makes sense. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in for savings. Let's say you, your spouse, or kids see the doctor or other medical provider. When your claims come in, HealthLock automatically renews them and flags any errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. So you pay only what you owe. This is your money, your saving. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped members save more than $130 million. I get it. Medical billing errors can happen, but you should be able to pay with confidence. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden medical bill errors. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Allen is a senior national politics reporter at NBC and author of Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Welcome back to Fast Politics, John Allen. Molly John Fest, I'm so happy to be back with you. I am so happy to have you. First of all, we're friends, which is so, and, and you know, since it's silly season, we don't get to see any of our friends because it's this insane primary season what or whatever. We're real friends. We're real friends. I sent you the holiday card, my family's holiday card. And I would say the real data point here is my kids were like, oh, it's the Allens. But so let's talk about you went from, you were in Iowa, now you're in New Hampshire. You know, this is not a normal primary season. Let's talk about Iowa first. You were there. I mean, the turnout was slightly less than half of what it was in 2016. But was the enthusiasm the same? I mean, sort of talk us through if you saw a difference on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a little bit less enthusiasm, partially because there wasn't much competition. I mean, I think it was very clear that Trump was going to win by a lot. But the other thing that I do think affected the turnout is that it was like 10 below, 20 below zero, like depending on where you were and what time of day. And, you know, there's ice and snow like blanketing the entire 
state. I mean, even the cities where they have like snow plows, you know, ready to go and, you know, municipal governments, like the streets were like caked in like inches of ice. So it was really dangerous to go out. And then I think that affected turnout as well. But also, I think the sense that it was a fait accompli, right? I mean, the polling showed that nobody was going to displace Trump. Right. When you say this is an unusual primary season, I think it's partially, it feels like an unusual primary season because Donald Trump is effectively an incumbent. I'm not saying that he won the 2020 election, but he has won the Republican nomination twice. Some ridiculous percentage of his party believes that the, or at least says that they believe the election was rigged last time. He is running as an incumbent in this primary. And yet there are relatively serious people who are running against him. And that's an unusual hybrid thing. Usually serious people do not run against incumbents in their own party. Which is what we're seeing in Biden world. Right. And the way it's playing out with the electorate here is much more like an incumbent running against non-serious people or somewhat serious people, but not an open seat uh, for the Republican nomination. And so that, you know, it shouldn't be terribly surprising that Trump was the dominant figure in his party. It has been since he arrived on the stage eight or nine years ago. Shouldn't be terribly surprising that he's dispatching pretenders to the throne. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I also think like they're not offering anything but a sort of mimeograph of the OG, right? That's definitely a, uh, you know, where DeSantis is. I think it's where Ramaswamy was. Christie was obviously very different. You know, Nikki Haley tried to thread a needle a little bit where, you know, she says Trump was the right guy at the right time, but now it's a different time. And so we don't need that guy anymore. And there's a lot of work being done by, you know, by the idea that she's offering something different, which she isn't, you know, terribly different from a policy perspective, but different enough for the rest of the Republicans to look at her and yell Democrat and different enough for the Democrats to look at her and be like, eh, she'd be better than Trump. Right. I want to talk to you about this because she this this segues right into the veep stakes. Right. I think Kamala Harris is going to get it. I think Kamala Harris will be Joe Biden's right, choice. Exactly. In the veep yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah. But in this veep stakes on the Republican side, there's a lot of anxiety in Trump world that Trump might pick Nikki. Right. Will you talk us through that? I think there's a lot of anxiety in Trump world about all of the people, and there's a lot of jockeying to be the person, and there's only one person that's going to make that decision. I mean, that's always the case, but it's even more so with Trump that trying to figure out what's going to influence him is a real guessing game. And I think the more active people are in trying to impress him or to appear to be impressing him for that reason, the more likely it is that he's going to decide they're not the right person. But who knows? I right. mean, I think he'll factor in a couple couple things like number one is this somebody you know who basically would try to stop the certification of an election like not that, that necessarily would come up again but the person with that kind of loyalty that no matter what he tries no matter what his interpretation of the constitution is that this person will be with him come hell or high water of the people that hit that qualification i think he's gonna kind of look in his mind's eye as he always does at the stage and think to himself Who's the person that looks best? Right. Who looks the most like in the TV version? Right. Right. Who looks the best matchup against Kamala Harris? And I don't mean physically looks the best, but like just matches up well, you know, and, and will match up in the mind's eye of voters. And so, you know, I think there was a point where that could have been Nikki Haley and maybe it could be again. She has touched a, a part of the Republican Party that Donald Trump has alienated and is obviously, you know, appealing to a lot of independents. But, you know, I think you're more likely to get somebody who's who he just likes. Yeah. Traditionally in that Trump mode, like 
Tim Scott or Christy Nome or somebody like that, but who knows? Right. I mean, I think the idea of ascribing logic to the way Trump works, there's no evidence to support the supposition that logic is involved in Trump's decision making. Well, I think the way that I would look at it is that his decisions aren't made along the line, the traditional lines for like a vice president. They don't necessarily track, you know, what generations of politicians have done. You know, like, I just think his metrics are different. He's not sitting there with some law firm, like going like, all right, let's vet their background. I mean, yes, I feel like we're having a conversation about him like he's a normal political candidate. And I think we should pause because even though and again, I know you're not you are nonpartisan and on the straight news side. So I'm not going to ask you to say anything here, but I'm just going to say in my mind, treating him like a normal candidate. Well, it is true. There are certain things about him like he's going through the caucus in a normal way, his his plan for what he will do if he gets reelected and the legal challenges that he's facing make him an unprecedented candidate. Fair. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's a partisan thing to say. I think he's he is unprecedented in American politics for a variety of reasons. And certainly, you know, the facing criminal indictment in three jurisdictions, one of them twice, is one of the ways in which he is non-traditional or, or unprecedented as a candidate. That's not partisan to me. Um, you know, the question of like, do you treat Donald Trump differently is a you know a separate question than that. But absolutely, there's never been anything like him in American politics. So let me ask you: one of the things that Trump has been doing is he's been going to all of these court cases. And he didn't go to the Eugene Carroll case when the jury was deciding and they voted in the civil case. They consider him to be guilty of raping Eugene Carroll, right? Uh, sexually assaulting. Sexually assaulting. This jury has found that, right? So now we're in this sort of damages phase. And actually now we're in a did he libel her? One of the things that he's been doing, and, and you can argue it's smart, you can argue it's dumb, but he has been trying really hard to make this case a case that is tried in the media and on his social media and not in the court, right? He's tried really hard to say this is about me and they're here to get me, but they're really trying to get you or make it a larger issue that isn't about his situation with E.G. And I'm wondering, I think that his sort of plan right now, as much as he has a plan for anything, is that he is going to be at a lot of these hearings, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems that way. I mean, what's your sense on how that plays? Well, at least in a primary, it plays very well for him. There's nothing that has, you know, has energized his base more than the idea that Donald Trump is being unfairly targeted. So I think he likes being in a courtroom. I mean, I'm sure he doesn't love sitting there listening to the judges tell him to shut his mouth, but it has been politically good for him with his base. And I think he understands that in order to win the presidential election, he needs his base super energized. He needs them angry. He needs them to believe that not only is he being treated unfairly, but he is, you know, as he likes to say, a vessel for them. And he likes to say that the government's going after him to go after them. And, and that's his argument. Making that something that is fresh in the minds of his supporters is important to his electoral strategy. Can we talk a little bit about what's happening in Congress right now? Sure. I know you're in New Hampshire. I'm touring the coldest places in the world in the wintertime. There are some really good pancakes. Right. There's some good. I had the best little stuffed grapes this morning. Yeah. I mean, New Hampshire is like a gem. It's I really think. the syrup. It's yeah. really the syrup that does it. 
So let's talk about Congress. We're in a really interesting moment, I think, in Congress where the Senate wants a border deal, whatever that looks like, more than the House wants a border deal. The reason that we haven't had comprehensive immigration reform and we've been you know, really debating it intensely for the last basically 20 years, the reason we haven't had that is that it is politically beneficial to the Republicans to not have it all. And at time, right now, at least, and at times, it is politically ben- beneficial to the Democrats to not have it solved. When George W. Bush was president, Barack Obama voted for a poison pill in the Senate that basically killed comprehensive immigration reform. The two parties like this fight. Right. Maybe more than anything else, speaks to the split in their values. It's a, something that generates money, like donations, something that generates votes. Right. On the Republican side. Well, but also on the Democratic side. Right now, the Democrats are hiding from it a little more than they, you know, than they might. You know, it probably depends on how much the public sees at any given moment undocumented immigration as a problem versus a positive, and that probably connects pretty closely to to what the economy looks like in the U.S. at any given time. But there are times when this is a, you know, an issue that's very beneficial for Democrats, or, or at least they didn't want George W. Bush to get it. I think, I mean, immigration is a really interesting issue because I feel like there's such a there's been so much can kicking on it and there's been on both sides for sure. Right now, though, we're in this tenuous position where it's going to be a third CR signed, which will keep the government from shutting down, sounds like. But the Ukraine funding border secure, I mean, this will be a package if it works. What I think is a little bit interesting about this moment is it seems as if Mike Johnson, as much as he is in the same almost identical situation to Kevin McCarthy, he seems like he's not being held hostage in quite the same way to the right now, to the far right. Now, he may still end up being held hostage by them, but he does. he's behaving as if he has more leeway. He does have more leeway, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, they already just got rid of a speaker, right? Right. <laughs> you can't do that too many times. You can't do it every week. He knows that there is some latitude. I also think that the reason that Kevin McCarthy is no longer the Speaker of the House is personal. They stopped liking him or they stopped trusting him or or whatever it was. But like there are different reasons. And I'm sure some of them would based on policy. But like the truth of the matter is there's not much difference between the way Mike Johnson will play this and the way Kevin McCarthy will play this, except for that Kevin McCarthy was a little bit more experienced and might have the benefit of that experience. And, you know, Johnson's still feeling his way out a little bit. Yeah. No, I mean, it's quite interesting, but it does seem like there is a schism in the party between Mitch McConnell saying he wants a border deal. Right. I mean, do you think there is and again, this is a supposition as much as anything, but like, do you think there's a world in which Mitch McConnell has less to lose and so is even less motivated by Trump and his anxiety about Trump? I do think he has less to lose. Look, he's already gotten everything he wanted out of life. You know what I mean? He's been set up majority leader or whatever. So like on a personal level, he's reached the apex. It seems like this is it for him, right? I think he wants to get the policy done. I think he thinks it's good to strengthen the border. I think he's an old school politician who's like, when you see an opportunity to get the thing done that your voters want done, you should do it. And so like, for example, you know, the Supreme Court stuff, you know, like, the judges, the Supreme Court, he wasn't like, oh, we're going to appoint these people and then they're going to undo Roe versus Wade and then we're going to lose a bunch of elections. Right. He was like, the people that elected me in the Senate are pro-life and the people who elected them want to see Roe overturned. And so we're going to push that. 
to get the thing done. There's something classic and predictable and traditional about that that is different from the modern Republican leaders that have succeeded or at least, you know, have grown up since Mitch McConnell first came to power. So, like, it makes sense that he would want a border deal. Also, um, even if they get a border deal, it's still an issue that his candidates can use in you know, on the campaign trail, because I don't think anybody's going to see a border deal and then immediately immigration's going to stop. I mean, Mike Johnson does have like an opportunity here to show Republicans doing stuff, you know, like he really has these far right Republicans who want to burn it all down. From what I understand from people I've talked to, I know you'll be shocked to hear that I don't talk to any Republicans in the House, but there is a sense that the people who are Republican, who are quote unquote normal Republicans, are furious with the hard right because they just want to get stuff done and they're irritated that these people have made them look bad. I would say members from swing districts that are on the, you know, on the chopping block. Like a Michael Aller. They're not happy with just blocking things and they're not happy with messaging votes. But if you're Mike Johnson and you want to get stuff done, like your best route is to like have a bunch of those messaging votes and like let all these let all the super conservatives like get their, you know, get their day on the House floor and then ask them to vote for the things that they don't like and say, like, look, we, we put your stuff up, even if it failed. And you can do that through an amendment process. It's one of the sad things that's been lost in recent years with, you know, a ton of turnover in the House and primaries and stuff is that leaders have lost the sense of how to legislate and the deals that you can make and the ways in which you can make your members happy or, or satisfy them enough. I feel like the floor is not used as well as it could be. John Allen, thank you so much. Also, Seersucker Day, right? Oh, I guess it's still going. Not in New Hampshire. <laughs> Not wearing Seersucker here. Wearing fleek. <laughs> Seersucker Day. Heather Williams is president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. Welcome to Fast Politics, Heather. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Let's talk a little bit about this 2024 memo. First, tell us what you do and why you are here. Happy to. So the DLCC is the party committee responsible for identifying ways to build power in the states. We work across states to really articulate and identify using data where the greatest opportunities are to build power. And what we're seeing is the states are where things are getting done. It's where the Democratic Party's agenda is getting accomplished, where the president's agenda is getting accomplished. It's where we're protecting our rights. And we are on the forefront of that work. Let's talk about that, because on the Republican side, we see, for example, in Texas, Abbott, killing migrants. I mean, I'm not laughing. I'm just shocked that that's happening. Governor Abbott took away the right to choose, right? I mean, that was what they did with SB8. So we do see a precedent for states setting the tone in a larger way, right? 100%. The Dobbs decision crystallized for so many people the importance of what was happening in the states. And it shed a light on what was going on in a way that it, it just hadn't existed before. And that's really important because for a long time, I think the states were seen as a laboratory of democracy, as an opportunity to try and test things. Legislation moves very quickly. Things can happen fast. And what we've seen since the Dobbs decision is a spotlight and Republicans 
refusing to listen to their you know constituents, to voters on the issues that they care about and what they want to see action on, and instead are using their power to advance their own personal ideals and agenda. Right. And I think also takeaway rights, right? I mean, SB8 is a great example of taking away rights. Like this was a right that it was enshrined in the Constitution, taken away by a state legislature. Absolutely. You know, the same thing happened in North Carolina when there was a party switcher and the governor lost the veto power. And the first thing Republicans did when they had enough power to do so was ban abortion. This is the first thing that they're doing everywhere. So let's talk a little bit about like I've certainly seen in Michigan, they've worked really hard at the state legislature. Can you talk a little bit about that? Michigan has been a legislative battleground for a long time, and we worked really closely with them. And and in 2022, we built a trifecta It is a narrow margin trifecta, uh, but it is one that took their power very seriously and they delivered for the voters. They delivered on their promises and they went into their first legislative session as a trifecta with a really clear agenda. And they made so much progress in Michigan. They advanced and secured abortion rights. They moved common sense gun legislation They made their labor laws so much better. They just did so much good with what they had. And now we're in a position where the state Senate is not on the ballot in 2024, but the state houses. And they are going to to prove their case to the voters. They're going to talk about all that they've accomplished. And um, they're certainly going to be asked to return to that uh, trifecta in November. When it comes to state legislature, what are the rights that you can enshrine for people? Oh, this is such a great question. The power of the state legislature is pretty vast. You know, when we think about in context of this decision and where our rights are, you're seeing Democrats in the legislature advance or secure our rights around uh, abortion and reproductive health care around access to contraceptives, around voting rights, around allowing us to love who we want to love and marry who we want to marry, around safety in schools, around safety in our community. Um, so many of these fundamental rights have a state-based component to them. And with the inaction in Congress and the deep need to address issues in this country, All of the action is happening in the states and you see such a stark contrast of not just priorities, but action when you look at and compare a Florida and what they are doing in their legislature in their state versus, you know, Minnesota or Michigan, new Democratic trifectas and what they are doing. So talk to me about Minnesota, because that is very exciting in my mind. Minnesota's done, you know, a really incredible job. The Senate is not on the ballot again in 2024. The House is. They really took uh, what I would say, and I'm from Minnesota, like a very pragmatic approach to they're legislating. They they looked at the things that were going to touch people's lives, that were going to give them some relief, that were really going to affect it. And the thing that that I always like to talk about in Minnesota is they made sure that all kids had access to lunch. And it is governing through that lens, through understanding that you have the power to not just make a difference, but to do things that have a true impact on our lives that represents the kind of community and government that we're actually looking for, that cares for people. And they accomplished that and so much more in Minnesota. 
Let's talk about that because the Republican case against free school lunches, free school breakfasts, is that it is like some real backward stuff. I mean, you know, we don't want to end up paying for someone who could afford lunch. I mean, they really have no argument against feeding hungry kids. Where else are you guys feeding hungry kids? Where else is the legislature doing those kind of anti-poverty things that seem to not get the spotlight but are so profoundly important? I think you're seeing elements of this across all of our Democratic chambers, and you're seeing advocating for this in chambers where Democrats are in the minority. This is the kind of work that Democrats are doing. Of course, the attention, right, is always on the ability to expand abortion access or to remove an ancient law off the books. That is what gets the spotlight. But when you go a layer deeper, you see these very pragmatic, smart approaches to ensuring that our communities are strong, that we're looking through a lens of justice and people feel included, and that we are using our resources to help people where we can. And we see that all over the place. And we see Republicans fighting against it, yet they are the first ones to offer vouchers where they may be doing the exact same thing for private schools, right? The person who could afford it is given a voucher, but we couldn't do the same for school lunch. I would love you to just explain to our listeners why you think that Republicans are happy to support schools that are not public in a way that they don't with public schools. I think what we're seeing across Republicans and the way that they are governing is that they are doing it for them and their very narrow communities. Their interests are not for the people they may not know or the communities they are not a member of. They they cannot seem to comprehend how to even say, you know what, I'm not a member of this community, but I understand that this thing is hard. Let me make it easier. Let me make sure that you are included in our community and that we are protecting you. Instead, it's looked through the lens of how do we hold on to the power that we have, we, me in this office, but also me in this community, and how do we expand that power so that we keep our power for a very long time and we use it to tell other people how to live their lives. Yeah. The legislating that you do, explain to us what that sort of centralized legislation means. So is that involved in getting Democrats elected at the state level? Is that helping to find candidates? I mean, what does that look like? The great question. We are the party committee, the political committee that is looking across all of these legislative elections. And so we are supporters and strategic partners and we share resources, right, with these campaigns where we can build power. And so it's everything from supporting candidate recruitment to making sure that we've got the best opportunities to communicate with voters at the door, which is such a cornerstone of our campaigns, those real conversations with voters in the community, to, you know, the paid communication 
at the very end. And I think if you know folks are interested in learning more, they can head to DLCC.org, but we are really in it all the way. Let's talk for a minute about what sort of legislatures, state houses you're looking at now, what states are up, what the landscape looks like, where you're hopeful, where you're not hopeful. So first, talk to us about what are your kind of focuses right now? This year, There is a lot of overlap with the legislative map and the path to the presidency and some of these really key statewide races. So the states and I think the opportunities are going to feel quite familiar. We've got real opportunities to challenge Republican control in Arizona and in New Hampshire. And we have a a need to return our narrow Democratic majorities in Michigan, in the Pennsylvania House, and then return that trifecta in Minnesota. And then The sort of third thing is we kind of think both an immediate rung on the power ladder, if you will, and also kind of long term, we're looking at places where we can secure a Democratic governor's veto power, understanding how important that is in Kansas and in Wisconsin and in North Carolina. And then we've got a, a list of places where we're really looking to, you know, gain ground. So I want to like really drill down on this because you are the person to talk about this. And so I want our list. A lot of our listeners are sitting there watching Donald Trump really freaked out. I think if our listeners are anything like my husband, completely freaked out. So I think they want to hear exactly what this plan is. So the state legislatures that need to that can be won are ones like Arizona, right? That that could be flipped. That is exactly right. Yep. Where the Republicans in control are vulnerable. And we believe that Democrats have the greatest opportunity in 2024 to create a Democratic majority. And so Arizona has a Democratic governor and a Democratic secretary of state and a Democratic AG. So it has three Democrats there, but the state house is still Republican. And when you have a Republican state house, especially a lot of these Republicans, are they tend to do a lot of like things that maybe Democrats wouldn't do to hold on to power, right? Yes, that's right. And so in Arizona, the governor, Governor Hobbs, who was a former legislator herself. Right. And you'll remember she won against Carrie Lake, who had made it clear that she did not believe in in democracy the way we've done it all this time. For it all. Yes, that is exactly right. So she is a former legislator, now the governor, and her power is different with a Republican, her her power in being able to proactively execute her vision for Arizona to make change is different with a Republican legislature. They have to work together and she does not have an ability to proactively do things. Now, she can obviously use her power in a lot of regulatory ways and there's a lot that she can do, but she does not have full power because she does not have the state legislature. They are Republicans. I just want like people to completely understand the situation here. If you can fl- flip the state legislature in Arizona, you can do things like free school breakfasts for public school kids. Yes, it is exactly what happened in, in Minnesota and Michigan. That is the result of creating Democratic power and creating new Democratic majorities in a state. And Arizona would be the next one of those. So codify row. Free school breakfast, that kind of thing. You'll be able to do that. New Hampshire also has a mixed state house, right? They're all Republicans right now. There's going to be an open governor's race. And the House is an enormous legislative body. It's 400 people in the New Hampshire House, which is wild given the size of the state. 
we are really close to a majority there. And I think that the New Hampshire Senate is also going to put up a, a really good fight as we move through this election. OK, so New Hampshire, Arizona. Those are the greatest places right now to create new majorities. Explain to us your second theory of the case when it comes to preventing supermajorities, because that's a really important idea that I don't know that people quite understand. Yeah. So using North Carolina as an example to, to sort of launch us into what the opportunities are in 2024. In 2023, there was a party switcher who gave Republicans the supermajority. Ran as a Democrat, but changed as soon as she got elected. That's right. She changed over the summer and that gave Republicans the power to override the governor's veto. They're Kristen Cinema. Yes, because yes. the governor <laughs> is is actually a Democrat. Yes, Governor Cooper. So Governor Cooper in that moment lost the veto pen, which meant that all of the abortion bans that had come to his desk, he could veto until that moment. And when Republicans gained that power, that ability to override his veto, they moved an abortion ban and he was unable to veto it. So when we think about how to build power in the states and truly what makes legislative elections and work in the state so interesting is you've got these different levers that you can think about as you're building towards the pinnacle of power, which is a democratic trifecta. So we want to make sure reelected governors in Kansas, uh, Governor Kelly, and in Wisconsin, Governor Evers, that they have the veto pound. And then in North Carolina, there is an open governor's race. We're going to believe very strongly that we're going to return a governor to North Carolina, a Democratic governor. We want them to come in with that veto pen because the legislature is so harmful under their Republican control. And so that is the, the power rung by which we are looking in 2024. Right. Makes a lot of sense. New Hampshire, Arizona, and then the three sort of fighting against the supermajority states are? North Carolina, Kansas. Wisconsin. All state houses with Democratic governors who are being foiled by Republican state electeds who want to strip them of power. Yes. Heather Williams, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. Thank you so much. I loved it. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jungfast, you know, it's like one of Trump's favorite things to do is like a little bit of like let me back out of this dumb thing I did when I realized I'm back into a corner and try to weasel his way out of it with some really inept language. What are you seeing here with that today? I don't know if you know this, but Trump is king. And so he needs to be able to shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. His supporters already feel that's not a bad thing for him to be doing. But Trump would really like it if the law also let him do that. He's working on it. So uh, that is what Trump is bringing the Supreme Court, his reign of kingness. And for that, Donald Trump, considering himself king, is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.
Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.